your fellow redeemed. We're going to consider especially our first reading from the Old Testament book of Genesis, chapter 22. And boy, oh boy. God says to Abraham, Look, Abraham, I know, I know Isaac was born like the same year as your 75th wedding anniversary. And I know you've got another son who's like a little bit more than a decade older. And I know that, that Isaac is the son of the promise. Isaac was the one that was promised and born of Abraham and Sarah. And that this son of the promise would be the one through whom all nations would be blessed, the one through whom the Messiah would eventually come, the one through whom look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can, because that is how many your offspring will be. And then God says, you know the one I'm talking about, right? <laughs> we don't want to get confused. Don't take Ishmael. Take Isaac your son, your only son, Isaac, and go on a journey and offer him there as a whole burnt offering. Yikes. Because when God uses terminology and he uses very specific words, the word there for a whole burnt offering is like, if you ever have um, been grilling and you forgot about the burgers on the grill and they just became charcoal pucks, yeah, volunteer in the back, yes, I agree. If you've ever had that experience, a whole burnt offering is kind of like that, but more. There's four other kinds of offerings that the Jewish people would eventually have, and God says, that's not the one that I want. And so Abraham, he, uh, he's you know, laying down for bed that night, he says, Sarah, well, God, talk to me again. <laughs> Isaac's going to go on a little trip with me, okay? And we'll be back in a few days. You could probably imagine how that went. He probably went into more detail. He probably said exactly what God had said, that God is asking for our son back, but don't worry, because God has attached his promise to this son. If you read the book of Hebrews to kind of fast forward to the end, how does this all turn out? The book of Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that that is what Abraham was thinking. That God commanded him to sacrifice his son, his only son, Isaac, and at the same time, God had promised that through this son, all nations would be blessed, and through this son, the Messiah would come. And Abraham sees these two apparently conflicting truths, and from Hebrews chapter 11, we see that Abraham reasoned. Well, God said, sacrifice my son. God said, this is the son of the promise. So therefore, God will raise him from the dead because there's no other son through whom God could keep his promise. And so Abraham gets up the next morning and he, he loads his donkey and his son Isaac, um, somewhere between like 12 and 30, <laughs> He's, um, and, and Abraham, you just take Isaac's age plus 100, and, uh, and they're setting off, and Isaac isn't necessarily this, um, 
compliant little, like, don't imagine him as this compliant little six-year-old boy. Imagine him as, like, somebody in his early 20s, perhaps, um, somebody who's been hit in the weight room because there isn't much else to do in the land of Canaan at this time, somebody who is in the prime of his life. And Abraham says, come on, we're going to go offer a sacrifice. And he brings along the, the other servants, and after three days of walking, they get to the place. And it's almost like you fast forward, and it's like, this is, this is almost too much to handle. And we need some context. First of all, we know that God tempts no one. The book of James tells us that God tempts no one to sin. He might allow temptation, but he does use that temptation for your good. He himself suffered while being tempted. Second of all, we know that God doesn't take sadistic pleasure in inflicting pain on his people, even when it comes to the, um, the cities of unbelievers. You think Sodom and Gomorrah, you think Nineveh, um, you think of these unbelieving nations that in some cases had done horrible atrocities, crimes against humanity, like put them before the hag on trial. God said, well, send Jonah there and let them know that they still have time to repent. And God himself came down to, to enter the city of Sodom and Gomorrah to see if things were as bad as he had seen, not that he needed to walk the dust there to see, because God searches the hearts and knows all things, but that he wanted to give the people a chance to repent. And so God isn't taking sadistic pleasure here in, in saying, all right, I, Abraham, it's kind of been like a bait and switch. I'm going to promise you for 25 years that I'm going to give you a son, and then I'll finally give you a son when you're 100 years old. And then 30 years after that, Abraham, boy, oh boy, I'm going to pull the rug out from underneath you, and I'm going to ask for him back. But this reading kind of puts things into sharp focus sharp focus for you and for me. Whether if you've been a parent or you've had siblings um, or you've had some decent parents, and you think to yourself, wow, what is God doing here? It's not, it's not temptation. It is definitely a test, but it isn't because God's trying to figure out if Abraham is going to pass or fail. It isn't because God is trying to figure out what's actually going on in his heart, because ten chapters previously, God had declared him righteous. Abraham believed God, and God credited it to him as righteousness. God knew his heart. So why? That God tests Abraham so that Abraham would see in his own life and put into practice in his own life exactly what it means to walk in the faith as a believer. Because you could probably, can probably sympathize that it's fairly easy to walk as a believer when God is, um, has promised to do all things for your good. It's fairly easy to walk as a believer when, when life is wonderful and, and everything is happening as it should. It's fairly easy to walk as a believer when there is no need or want, no worry about where the meal is coming from, no worry if the bank is going to call and foreclose this month or next month. It's fairly easy to walk as a believer when the doctors say, clean bill of health, you are healthy as a horse, healthy as somebody who is like 20 years younger than you. That's the easy part. But then when God allows 
or perhaps sends, we don't know. When God allows things to happen that jolt us into reality and jolt us to an understanding of our frailty, that's a different thing entirely. Pastorally, this is something that comes up fairly often. Um, you know, lifelong believer who has um, you know, dedicated their life to, to coming to worship and coming to Bible class, and then you sit and talk with them in the last days, what, you know, from a human perspective, are the last days of their life here. And they're like, you know, Pastor, <laughs> I got it before, but now I know it by experience. Now I know it by experience. Exactly all those truths that I held on to, now I have to apply them in my own, those things, and now I know. And so the question, here go uh, Abraham and Isaac all the way up to Mount Moriah, um, which is quite probably the location of the Temple Mount like a thousand years later. Here go Isaac and Abraham up Mount Moriah. They've been walking for like three days. And God says, here is the person that you treasure most in your life, and I want you to give him up because you love me. Yikes. Can you sympathize? I mean, I mean obviously, there's the obvious question of what would you say? If God said, well, give me your, your son, your daughter back, <laughs> what would you say? And not being in Abraham's sandals at the moment, it would be like, well, yeah, I, I hope I say yes. <laughs> you know, God, you know I love you above all things. You know. God, I'll, I'll do one better. I'll do one better. I won't, I won't give up my child for you. I will, uh, I will take their place. I'll do whatever it takes to save my child's life so that they can go out and live out their years and, um, and, and just take me instead. Isn't that a, a better deal? A better deal? It's that question of idolatry. Not the question of, of um, loving the wrong things. Something else or someone else takes the position of God in our lives. And we know the first commandment, you shall have no other gods. What does this mean? We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things, above things that are scary, above things that are bad, above things that are good. And so the question of idolatry that lays before us is, it's not so much the question of loving the wrong things, people, stuff, you name it but of loving the good things poorly. And so, you know, the question of um, Abraham, take your son, Abraham, take your son and sacrifice him, obviously it is a question of loving a good thing poorly because here is Isaac that is supposed to be treasured by his parents, Isaac that's supposed to be provided for by his parents, Isaac who is the son of the promise. The parents have a natural inclination, obviously, to love and care for this child. And above all, they see their divine responsibility given by God to raise this child, to care for this child, and to love this child. 
it's a good thing to love our kids. It's a good thing to take care of the, the blessings that God has given to us. It's a good thing, like, to, to change the oil on your car every, every few thousand miles, rotate your tires. I don't know how many, Mark. <laughs> I usually go 5,000 miles. It's a good thing to do the maintenance at home. It's a good thing to wash the dishes. It's a good thing to, to serve your spouse. It's a good thing to watch out for your family and, and to love them. But the question is of idolatry isn't just loving the wrong things, but loving the blessings from God, the good things, poorly. And so the, the easy way to ask that question is, um, if God were to ask you to give up, what would it be? And we could all sit here and rack our minds for like six minutes and maybe come up with, you know, two or three things that would be fairly common. But I think there's a little bit more to it than that. When we're looking at, um, we're looking at in particular this idea of, um, of rethinking religion. That's the series that we're in. And I think it's a, a spinoff of something that Tim Keller had written. He was a conservative Presbyterian pastor in New York City and one of the, the best communicators in the modern era. Uh, and the way that he wrote this, the way that he said this, the way Tim Keller put it, was that there are three general approaches to God. Religion, number one. Irreligion, number two. And Jesus. Religion, the way that he described it in this like tripartite division, uh, religion is the idea of my obedience. If I just, you just tell me what to do, tell me what not to do, and I'll do it, religion, obedience. Irreligion, the opposite, that I will find my own way to God by getting away from and pushing away against all the, uh, all the rules, all the regulations. I'm going to do it my way, exactly as Frank, Frank Sinatra sang. And the third way, Jesus. Jesus. Um, took uh, upon himself all of the obedience that was empty, all the irreligion that was self-sought, and he has given to you and to me his substitutionary death. And so that, that's kind of like the, the three-part division that we're working with. And so when we look at and we see Abraham and his son trudging up Mount Moriah, carrying the wood and carrying the fire and carrying the rope, it's more than a question of what are the bad things that we love or what are the good things that we love poorly. And the way that Tim Keller talked about this, he talked about a number of different types of idolatry. So bear with me for just a moment. Obviously, these are not my words, but um, he's kind of put it together well. That we don't sink into the idea of, we don't sink into the idea of idolatry by mentally putting someone or something on the throne of Christ. But in our American setting, in our modern minds, we tell ourselves, life has meaning if. And so life has meaning if, and I have worth if, I can get mastery over my life in this area. Control. Idolatry. I can get mastery over my life in this area, control, idolatry. Or maybe the reverse of that, that people are dependent on me and they need me. Helping idolatry, my work, my helping. Maybe uh, life has meaning if, and I'm worth it, 
if someone is there to protect and keep me safe. That's dependence idolatry. Or maybe I'm free from all obligations and responsibility, independence. Maybe life has meaning and I have value if I'm highly productive and getting a lot done, work idolatry, followed closely by uh, life has meaning if I am being recognized for my accomplishments and excelling in my work achievement. Life has meaning if I have a certain level of wealth, financial freedom, and nice possessions, materialism, idolatry. Life has meaning if I activities and the regulations of my religion. Or, conversely, I feel that I am independent of any organized religion and I'm living my self-made morality, irreligion. Life has meaning if this one person in my life is happy with me individual person as the idol. Maybe life has meaning if um, my race and culture is recognized as superior, racial idolatry. Life has meaning if a particular social or professional grouping lets me in, I'm in the inner circle idolatry, or maybe my children and or my parents are happy and they are happy with me, family idolatry, maybe Mr. or Mrs. Wright is in love with me, relationship idolatry, Maybe I'm hurting in a, in a problem, and only then do I feel worthy of love, guilt, idolatry. Maybe my suffering or political cause, my social cause, is making progress and ascending in influence, or I'm just holding out for the day when it does. Ideology, idolatry. Or I have a particular kind of look or body image, image idolatry. He parses it out fairly well of not just the things that are poor for us to love, but the things that we love poorly. And to look at those and for God to say, you know what? Your worth, your value isn't dependent on your obedience. Your worth, your value, isn't dependent on um, the opinions of others. Your worth, your value, isn't dependent on whether somebody else is happy or even if you've fulfilled all the obligations that you could ever find. Your worth, your value, is dependent on the one who walked out into the wilderness alone. Because Genesis chapter 22 is kind of the mirror image of Mark chapter 1 that in Genesis chapter 22, out of love for God, the Father takes up the knife. Mark chapter 1, out of love for you, God walks through the wilderness. Out of love for you, God walks into the wilderness. And not simply to, to suffer temptation, to say, been there, done that, I lived the human experience, and now I've got the credibility, but he walks out there to be tempted and a real temptation because he could have sinned, but he didn't. And not to say, do what Jesus did. Like, here's the manual for defeating temptation. Mark doesn't give us that. He says, here's the Jesus who defeated temptation. Here's the Jesus who defeated temptation so that 30, well, three years after Mark chapter 1, we have the son carrying the wood again up a similar Mount Moriah, a hill nearby, and the father takes up the knife again. 
of love for you. <laughs> Do you see? That the whole point of this is that Jesus didn't just come for pretty good people who needed a little bit of coaching and needed a little bit of guidance and needed a little bit of help and needed a little bit of a mirror of God's law and then we all have a slap on the hand and we go on our way and feel better about ourselves, that Jesus came to carry sin. Of every element and every aspect of fearing or loving or trusting God less than anything else, of every aspect of even seeing and loving the, the things and the people in our lives, but loving them poorly because we love them less than our Lord. And God is the only one who can read the heart and who has diagnosed that thoroughly enough. And God is the only one who could carry that sin and say, Dear Christian, that your salvation rests on the one who laid down his life willingly, that your salvation rests on the one who went into the wilderness to do battle with the devil to win. And not just, not just to win for his own perfect record, but that that record is also yours. So that his victory isn't just in the taking away of sin at the cross, but his victory is also in the giving of his righteousness, his holiness, his perfect record. When Satan says, jump, and he says, no. <laughs> when Satan says, serve yourself by making food, and he says, no. In all, every single aspect of loving God above all things and even loving the good things that God has given and loving them perfectly, all of that is yours. All of that is given to you because you see, you see that's what our God does. That when he calls Abraham and says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, he's not doing that because he delights in the heartache of his, uh, of his believer, but he's doing that to highlight for you and for me what exactly it means to love God above all things. And how often, how often our loves get confused he does this, and he says, take your son, your only son, Isaac, and offer him as a whole burnt offering. He does that so that we see that it doesn't depend on our obedience and our loving things perfectly and loving the perfect things perfectly, but instead on the one who walked in the desert, on the one who gives you his body and blood. And so this is, in conclusion, this is kind of the way that... Um, one of the early church fathers put it. His name was John uh, Chrysostom. He said, and so then when we're thinking about temptation, we're thinking about idolatry, we're thinking about how does the life of Jesus help me in my daily life? How does the life of Jesus help me to love the people and the things in my life better? This is what he writes. Let us then return from the Holy Communion table like lions breathing fire, having become terrible to the devil, thinking about our head, Jesus Christ, on the, and on the love that he has shown for us. This Lord who says, I feed you with my own flesh and blood, desiring that you all be nobly born and holding forth good hopes for your future. He says that he has willed to become your brother. For your sake, he shares our flesh and blood. And he gives us the flesh and blood by which he became our brother. This blood causes the image of our king to be fresh within us. It produces beauty unspeakable and prevents the nobleness of our souls from wasting away. It nourishes our souls and works, them, works in them a mighty power. Because you see what God does here. 
He gives us this vivid image, Abraham and Isaac, that is fulfilled in the greater reality of Jesus in the desert. And he brings it into your life, and he says, take and eat, take and drink. The victory that Jesus won in the desert and the victory that Jesus won on Calvary has purified and cleansed your love. So go ahead and love God. And go ahead, rejoice in the victory that you have over the devil. And go ahead, love those that God has given to you. Amen. Amen.